Turn with me in your copy of God's Word this morning to the book of Matthew. If you want to just turn to Matthew 5 for a moment, kind of skim over a few points there as we look at Matthew 6 this morning. We begin into the 6th chapter of Matthew, the kind of the second chapter of what's known as the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount goes from Matthew 5 to Matthew 7, and so we kind of shift gears into Matthew 6 today. But as we do, I, I know many of you may not have been here when we started the Sermon on the Mount, and I, I wanted to just kind of give us a, a brief view of the Sermon on the Mount from 35,000 feet up in the air. Matthew 1, 5.1, 1, you see, first of all, and an important point that we have to remember is that Jesus here is teaching his disciples. He's teaching his followers. And so this sermon is not something that is teaching how to merit salvation. It's not teaching us how we earn salvation or how we enter into the kingdom. It's teaching us what it looks like to live for God's glory in the kingdom. It's a kingdom ethic. It's Jesus declaring this is what it looks like to be a follower of his. So we started in verses 3 through 12, what are known as the Beatitudes, and we learned about the character of the disciple that is based on blessing by God, the character of the disciple that is blessed by God. We turn then to verses 13 to 16 of Matthew 5, and, and we learn of our identity as the salt and the light and the purpose of that identity to influence the world for the glory of God. And in the most recent section that we've walked through, Matthew 5, 17 to 48, where Jesus talks of the, his, his purpose in coming not to abolish the law, he says in verse 17, but to fulfill the law to teach us what the true intent and the true meaning, the true heart of the law is, that it is to be of the heart, not just religious morals and deeds that we do, but, but those that we do out of a heart that loves the Lord. In Matthew 6, 1 to 18, our passage that we'll look at today, Jesus somewhat shifts gears as he had been looking and, and causing us to examine our heart and we think about the law and the intent and the purpose of the law in chapter 6, verses 1 through 18, he continues this focus on our heart, but he does so focused on our religious deeds, what we do. So he shifts gears from the heart behind sin to the heart behind our religion, is what we'll look at this morning. So that presents us with an important question then. Why are we here? Why are you here today? What, what is your intent? What is your purpose this morning for walking in and going to Bible study and gathering with the believers and coming and sitting in here this morning? Do we gather out of habit? Do we gather in an effort to influence others or to make a name for ourselves, to impress others? Or do we gather because we're worshipers? Do we gather because we follow Jesus and we want to praise him for who he is and all he's done? Let's read together a lengthy section this morning, Matthew 6, verses 1 through 18, as we consider that question. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. 
But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Matthew chapter 5 dealt with moral righteousness. How do we live ethical moral lives as God intends. It it was a teaching on morality rooted in heart righteousness and not just rule following. We come into Matthew 6 then, Jesus is dealing with religious righteousness, that we are to practice our religion focused on God's praise, not upon our own praise. So the reason that we gather, the reason that we do what we do as followers of Christ is not to be to receive praise from man, but instead to bring glory and honor to God. Now, I want to give you four things. I I think this brings up four reasons that this is important for us. Why is it important for us to hear this passage? I want to give you just this this morning as we get into the passage, four reasons that I would say we're prone to do religion for man rather than for God. These are four things that perhaps you might identify with or have identified in the past. First, I think we are prone to do religion for man rather than God because of a fear of man. Some, some gather because they're prone to be very concerned about what others think. If I, if I don't come, they'll think this about me. If I do come, they'll think this about me. So some gather because of the applause or the approval of man. So the fear of man can lead us to gather just thinking or just wanting to be seen by man and not in order to bring glory to God. Second reason is I think some struggle with a, a misplaced identity. A, a misplaced identity, one that, that derives their value, their sense of meaning, their sense of purpose from what others think of them. So, so I might value and, or, or derive or, or get my value from what you think of me. And so if I do these things, then I'm going to elevate your thinking of me, which makes me feel more valuable. It's a, it's a misplaced identity. 
The, the third reason that we're prone to do religion for man rather than God is simply wrong goals. Wrong goals. We, we focus on tangible, present, worldly goals and measures rather than God's greater, eternal, heavenward reward. And so we're focused on the things of man, on the things that we might achieve. This is where I believe many preachers can go wrong. That, that I can sacrifice sound doctrine and integrity in the pulpit and integrity as a pastor simply to build numbers and to get applause from you. It's a temptation that preachers face. It's a temptation that has led many, many preachers, pastors astray in our land because we have the wrong goals. Instead of the goal to praise and exalt the Lord, the goal is to praise and exalt ourselves or to receive your praise upon us. It's a danger for pastors. Number four, I think the reality is that some gather and they're simply unregenerate. They're unbelievers. And they're playing a religious game, but they're not truly saved. They're not truly followers of Christ. And so the intent and the purpose is to come and to please man rather, to come, rather than to come and to worship God. I think those are four reasons that's very common for us to gather for the wrong reason, for the wrong purpose that Jesus addresses here in these 18 verses. And so I want us to look at first one. When Jesus addresses this, he confronts the problem of fake religion. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, we look, this is really the theme verse for these 18 verses. Everything, the, the gist of what he's saying all uh, explains and, and clarifies what he states in verse 1. And he begins with a, an important word, right? Beware, beware. It, he, it's, it's a word that simply says take heed of or, or guard against. He's warning against the danger. It's, it's something that we need to take note of. We don't just casually go, oh, beware, I'm not going to worry about it. No, it's like when, when I'm running. I'm a runner, and several of you in here are runners, and when you're running down the road and you come up and people have beware of the dog in their road, I don't casually go, oh, let me kind of veer into their yard and see what this is about. I don't do that. I go to the other side of the street, Right? Or, depending on how shady the house is, and if I see the dog already out, I turn around and go the other way, right? I take heed. I'm not going, oh, they just like the sign. No. I go, there's a dog there, and it wants to eat my leg off. I'm going somewhere else, right? Well, Jesus here says, beware. We need to be paying attention. We need to be on the alert. Now, later in Matthew 7, we get into the final chapter that's, that includes the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 7, 15, he'll later say this again. He'll say, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's, clothings, but, in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. He's warning of those outside, of those who could be a danger to us. But it's important to note here, he's not warning us of other people. Who's he warning us about? Ourselves. He's warning us and saying, look within and make sure that you are not doing this. Make sure you are not practicing your religion for others. Beware of your own motives. So what he's warning us of is this fake, superficial, false religion. A false religion where he says here, that beware of practicing your righteousness. You see, some, some translations may say piety or some may say religion. That word can, can be uh, articulated or translated in any of those ways. Religion, piety, righteousness. It's the same thing. So beware of a fake or superficial piety. Beware of a fake or a superficial, a false religion. 
Jesus is confronting here a Christianity that is Christian in name and deed, but not in motive and heart. It's one that's just going through the motions. It's one that's just looking the part, but is not truly the part. It's a religion that's all too prolific in our day and certainly in our area of the country in the Bible Belt. You see, later in Matthew 15, 1 through 9, Jesus confronts the Pharisees with their hypocritical lips. They're, they're concerned about their traditions. And he confronts them and he says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. He confronts the Pharisees in this moment with hypocritical lips. And what he's confronting us with in this passage in 6, 1 through 18 is hypocritical religion, a religion that honors God with its deeds, but its heart is far from him. And I think it's an important question. It's a hard question that we need to ask. Are we gathered today in hypocrisy of religion? that we would gather today and we are here and we are going through the motions and we're singing and we're all dressed up and it's a great day and our heart is completely somewhere else. Our heart is elsewhere. Our heart is anywhere but here. Is our heart here? Now, I I want you to notice specifically the words Jesus uses here, right? Note specifically what he says to be aware of. Beware of of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. So he does not just say, beware of practicing your righteousness, right? No, we are indeed to live out our faith. We are indeed to practice our religion. We are indeed to practice what our preach, the exact op- or, uh, practice what we preach, the exact opposite of what the Pharisees were doing in the, the passage that Arthur read. They said that they were preaching, but they were not practicing, right? Jesus doesn't say, don't practice your religion. No, he says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. What else does he not say? He he doesn't just say, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. He's not condemning the, the public practice of your religion. We are indeed to live out our faith among the world. We are to let people see that we follow Christ. Now, listen, understand you, the world would say both of these things, right? Our culture would say both of these things. Hey, I'm fine with you being a Christian. You can be a Christian all you want. You can check that on all the surveys. It's totally fine if you say you're a Christian, just don't practice it. And by all means, don't practice it in the public square, I mean, we really don't want you practicing it in your office. And we really don't want you practicing it in your schools or in the court of law or in, uh, in politics. We don't want you to practice it there. See, the world may say that, but Jesus does not say that. What does he say? He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to... Those are three important words. I would circle those. If you write in your Bible, I would circle those words in order to what? Be seen by them. The the, the practice of your religion in public is not what Jesus is condemning. It's not what he's warning warning us of. What he is warning us of is doing so in order to be seen by man. That is what he's warning us of. The problem was not 
living out your faith. The problem was not living out your faith that others might see it. The problem was living out your faith in a way that it was just focused on other people seeing it and drawing attention to yourself in order that you might be seen. Listen, this is why Matthew 5.16 and Matthew 6.1 do not contradict themselves. Do you remember Matthew 5.16? Flip, flip back. In Matthew 5.16, we, we, it's the passage 13 to 16 where we're told that we're the salt of the earth and we're the light of the world, right? That we're to be influencers in our world. And then he says in, in Matthew 5.16, he says in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So Jesus says here, he says, listen, you need to live out your faith and make sure people see it. Why? Not for your praise. Oh, no. No, let them see your faith. Let them see your good deeds. Let them see your good works. Let them see your light. Why? That they might praise God. That they might see him and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You see, that's much different than what he's saying in 6.1. In 6.1, he's saying, listen, beware of practicing your righteousness in order to be seen by men. To receive praise from them. He's warning us of the practicing of our religion in order to get praise for man, to be, to be seen by them, that people would look and go, oh, what a great guy that Todd is. Man, he is just a great guy. I just love him. Oh, thanks. You know? And Jesus says, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> You've missed the boat. You've missed it. You need to be aware of that. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, Cost of, The Cost of Discipleship, said our piety has to be visible, but we must take care that it does not become visible simply for the sake of visibility, right? Our, our religion should be visible. People should see it, but we have to make sure that it does not become visible just for the sake of being visible, right? We need to examine our motives. But this is important for us because we are prone to be glory robbers, we're prone to draw the attention of man. We're prone to feed off other people's intention, aren't we? Attention. That we're like a bunch of toddlers running around sometimes. You guys have toddlers that have had kids or you have a sibling that's young. You've seen this. It's actually really cute, right? We love it. Like they'll be doing something. Maybe they're in the living room and there's a song comes on TV and they're kind of moving a little bit, you know? Well, you walk in and they, all of a sudden they look over and they see you looking or you're there's a group there and you go, oh, look at so-and-so. And then all of a sudden they go from, and they're like, whoa, you know, and they're just going crazy. I mean, they are like tearing the floor up. Why? Because all of a sudden they see that they're getting attention from you and they want that attention. When they become aware that people are watching it, that people are laughing at them, people like them, then they just want that attention. They're like, give me more, more, more. And our hearts are prone to do the same. The problem is this is not God honoring religion. It is not the religion that we're called to partake. You see, God-honoring religion shows not how righteous I am, but how righteous God is. It shows not how great I am, but it shows how great God is. Not how merciful I am, but how merciful God is. Not how faith-filled I am, but how faithful God is. Not how beautiful my prayers are, but how beautiful the one is to whom I pray. It doesn't show how you should be like me, but it shows how you should be like my God. It does not show how much money I give to others, but how God gave his 
only son for sinful people like me and you. That is true religion. It magnifies Christ. It exalts Christ. It elevates Christ in the name of Christ. It does not elevate my name. It does not elevate the name of our church. It does not exalt all of these man-made things, but it exalts the name of Christ. Listen, if you're here among us today and you're an unbeliever, I I pray and I hope that you join with us and, and you gather and you don't leave going, wow, those people are great. Wow, that's a great church. No, I don't want that. We don't want that. That's not our desire. No, our desire is something much greater, much more valuable, much more weighty that you would leave and that you would say, their God is an awesome God. He's a magnificent God. He is a glorious God. He's a merciful God. He's a gracious God. That you would come and you would be in our midst and you would say, God is God and he is God alone. And I want to know him. I want to know this one who is holy and eternal and sovereign and exalted and mighty yet sent his son to die for a sinner such as I. Oh, I want to know that God. We hope that that's why you're here, that you would come and you see that God is the one who came to earth as a man, Jesus, who lived as a man without sin, who died the death of a criminal for sinful men and rose from the grave to defeat death. He's the God who saves all who repent and believe in him. That's what we want you to know. We want you to know that we gather not because we're just a bunch of religious nuts or because we just do good things, but we gather because we worship a good and a gracious and a merciful God. And we want you to know him. And we would ask and we would plead and we would encourage you to turn from your sins today and confess Christ as Lord and follow him in faith. That would be our hope for you today, unbeliever. What Jesus does here, you see his reason back to verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. And then his reason. Here's why you should be aware of that. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. This is a theme that we see often in the Sermon on the Mount. That, that we would look to and strive for God's greater blessing, God's greater reward. That we would have an eternal perspective, a heavenward perspective as we live. Jesus doesn't identify exactly what that reward is, but he does make a statement about God's greater reward seven times in this passage. In verses 1 through 18, he talks about this seven times in verse 1, verse 2, verse 4, verse 5, verse 6, verse 16, and verse 18. And we don't know exactly what this reward is. But here's what we do know, is this reward comes from our good and gracious king who possesses all things, who is all wise and knows what is best for us in our lives. And he has an eternal perspective as he knows all things. And so we can know that this great reward from him is beautiful and good for us and glorifying to him. I do wonder if it might be similar to what Jesus talks about in Matthew 25, verse 14 to 30. And we think uh, in Matthew 25, it's the parable of the talents. Some of you in here will remember this parable. 
that Jesus tells. He, he tells the, the story of, of a, a master who leaves and he looks at three servants and to, to one servant he gives uh, a talent and to one servant he gives five talents and another servant he gives two. And he comes back and he asks them what, he, what they did with those talents. And when he comes to the first one, the first servant says, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. And his master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. (laughs) Enter into the joy of your master. He says the same thing to the next one. He says, "Uh, uh, master, you gave me two talents and here I've made two more. And the master said, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. I don't know for sure what the reward is that Christ talks about here. But I know how incredible it is to think of the joy of God, the joy of our master. Have you ever, you've seen glimpses of this? Have you ever experienced the joy of a parent, the joy of a coach, a teacher, someone in a authority over you, perhaps a boss, that whatever it is, for some reason, maybe you've, you've done something, you've learned something, you've achieved something, you've been faithful with the task before you, and in that moment, that parent, that boss, that coach, that teacher just rejoices over you and makes a big deal and You can just see the joy on their face, the expression. You know that sense. I mean, you're kind of like, you don't need anything else. It's like, wow. Oh, that would pale in comparison to the idea that we would be faithful to live for God's glory in such a way that we would enter into the joy of our master, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Almighty God the great I am. Oh, what joy that would be. So we are to indeed live as believers with an eternal heavenly perspective, thinking of God's greater reward. We live with one eye on the world. We're not as though we walk around just looking up and totally unaware of what's going on around us. But we do live with one eye on the world and the situation, but one eye always set upon Christ, always set upon the things of heaven. That's what the Beatitudes did. In verses 3 through 12, the Beatitudes teach us to value God's blessings more than what the world would say is blessed. In Matthew 14, 16, we're called to influence the world not for the, the, the promotion of our own name, but for the glory of God. In verse 20, we live moral lives based not on man's tradition, but based on God's kingdom ethic, Right? And later, in 6 verses 19 to 21, we're going to be called to store up treasures not on earth, but treasures in heaven because where our heart is, where our treasure is, that's where our heart is. We're called to look beyond today and look to the future. Matthew 6, 33, the same thing. We're called to seek God's kingdom rather than worldly assurances, worldly pleasures, worldly securities. In Colossians 3, 1 to 3, we read, if then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. 
What Paul's saying here is the same thing. He's saying, if you've been raised with Christ, if you're a believer, if you're a follower of Christ, then seek the things that are above. Don't seek the things of the world. Don't seek the praise of man. Don't seek the applause of man. Don't seek worldly treasures, but no, set your mind on things that are above, not on the things of earth, Paul says. Look to the things of God. Set your gaze heavenward. Set your gaze on God's glory, God's value. God's greater reward. Set not your gaze on the applause of man. Set not your gaze, live not for more followers, more shares, more likes, but set your gaze, set your goal, set your life on the glory of God and the joy of your master. Let's live for him. Let's live a true religion that seeks to magnify Christ, not me, not me. So Jesus goes on and gives three illustrations. At this point, some of you are panicking, I know. We're not going through every verse today. But he gives three illustrations. Three illustrations to clarify and to help us to understand what he's saying here. And there's some patterns that develop here in verses 2 through 18 that I want us to see. There's three patterns that we need to take note of. The first one is this, is that first Jesus just assumes religious deeds of his people. He just assumes that we will carry out our religion, that we will practice our piety, that we will live out our righteousness. So if you look in in verse 2, he says, when you give to the needy. In verse 5, when you pray. In verse 7, when you pray. In verse 16, when you fast. He doesn't say, you know, if you were to do those things. I mean, you know, if you were to get really spiritual and help those in need. I mean, if, if you were to be some real religious nut and actually pray, like, here's how you should do it. And if you should really go off the deep end and start fasting, like, here's how you should do it. No. He says, listen, when you do these things, he just assumes. It is what we do as believers. We live out our faith. We practice our religion. We seek personal holiness. So that's the first pattern we see. Second pattern is this. It's all throughout here. Jesus is confronting hypocrisy. In in verse 2, verse 5, and verse 16, he again, he confronts hypocrisy. Now, that word refers to one who wears a mask. It's it's one that is rooted in in plays, in entertainment. The one who is the actor, who puts on a mask, a different persona to carry out his role on a stage and to entertain. He's not his true and genuine self. Now, on the stage of entertainment, this is all fine and well. We expect this, right? We watch very few movies in which the actor is portraying themselves. We totally expect them to take on another role, and then we actually hope that they're not playing themselves, right? We enjoy their role. However, on the stage of life, this must not be. On the stage of life, the believer is to be genuine to be sincere, to truly live what he says he lives and to believe what he says he believes. Now, there's two things that we need to say about this. First, the question, are we wearing masks? Like, are we living in hypocrisy? Am I wearing a mask to make people think I'm one thing while all the while I'm something else, right? Right? So we need to ask that question. Am I 
living in hypocrisy. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing. Is we need to understand and recognize this. I think this is important. Sinning does not make a believer a hypocrite. Okay? You hear that? Sinning does not make a believer a hypocrite. And I want to explain that. I want to explain to you what I mean by that. Essentially, what I want you to see is that hypocrisy is indeed a sin. It is a sin. But sin does not equal hypocrisy. That's a key distinction we need to understand. Because when Jesus is confronting hypocrisy, he's confronting the idea that his followers would claim to be something that they are not in reality. The idea that we would claim to be righteous, that we would claim to be perfect, and we're not. That we would claim to come before God in prayer, but we don't. The only time we do is when people are watching. That we would claim to be what we're not. Projecting a righteousness that is not there. That's what Jesus is confronting here. It's the same thing that, that Paul confronts in Galatians 2, 11 to 14. Do you remember this? When Paul confronts Peter, right? Why does he confront Peter? Well, he confronts him because of this. He says his conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. He was projecting one thing and living the other. Jesus confronts again in Matthew 23, 1 to 36. Jesus confronts the hypocrisy of the Pharisees over and over and over again, condemns it. In 1 Peter 4.2, Paul refers to those who, uh, those led astray, you know who they're led astray by? The insincerity of liars, the hypocrites. It's the same word, the insincerity of liars, hypocrites. But listen, what I want you to see is that this is different. This is different from a follower of Christ who would openly confess to you and say, I am a sinful man, I am a sinful woman, and I lean wholly on the grace of God. I am pursuing holiness, I'm pursuing Christ with all I have, but I am not perfect. I sin, I fail, but I look to him for forgiveness. I admit that I'm a sinner. I admit that I live in daily dependence upon him. I think this is important because this, and this is kind of one of those things that just, just, I, I don't like it. I don't like this whole idea of someone going, well, I don't go to church because there's a bunch of hypocrites there. And, and what's the response of so many? I'm sure people in here have said it. I'm, I know I've said it in the past. What's the response that's often just thrown out casually? Oh, yeah, the church is full of hypocrites and I'm one of them. <laughs> really? Like, as though we're not concerned with personal holiness, as though the church is not called to live differently, we are called to live differently. I think we need to quit with this kind of casually, flippantly throwing out this, this idea that, yeah, we are a bunch of hypocrites and it's no big deal. No. Are there hypocrites in the church? Yes, there are. Are they to be called out? Yes. Are they pleasing to God? No. But the idea that just because you strive for the glory of God and you're living for him and you're seeking to follow him and in the midst of that you sin, that you're, oh, you hypocrite. I can't see that in what Jesus teaches. What I see in that is I see the declaration of the Apostle Paul in Romans 7. I do what I don't want to do and the things that I don't want to do, I do 
Oh, wretched man that I am. Who will save me? Who will save me? Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. He will. He has. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I'm simply calling you to have a deep concern in regard for personal holiness. To long to live for God's righteousness, to live out true religion for the glory of God, not for the praise of man, but to be real about it. Not to project this false piety, this false perfection that in so doing I never make a mistake. No, we make mistakes. We sin. We say things that we should not say. We do things that we should not do. But in those moments, the believer who is following Christ confesses that to him and seeks reconciliation with man. Who comes before man and confesses that and says, you know what, I said something to you, brother, that was absolutely hurtful and I'm asking your forgiveness. It did not glorify God. Would you please forgive me? That we would project ourselves as a people living wholly dependent upon the grace and the mercy of our God. A grace that, yes, saves us and a grace that sustains us also every day of our life. That's what we're called to. The last pattern that we see in verses 2 through 18 is something we've mentioned already, but it's a pattern all through the passage that Jesus directs our focus to God's greater reward. Verses 2 through 4, verses 6 and verse 18, every one of them call us to look to God's greater reward, not just the reward of man. So the three illustrations that he gives, the three illustrations, first one in verses two to four, he talks about giving to those in need, giving to those in need. What is the hypocrisy here? What does he say? That you give to the needy and evidently some are sounding a trumpet as they did so. So the hypocrisy is giving to impress others with our generosity. It's the hypocrisy of giving some money with this hand while this hand's going, hey, Look right here. Check this out. You see me? Look how nice I am. Look how generous I am. Oh, man, I'm so giving. (laughs) Have you seen how much I give? Have you seen how impressive my generosity is? I mean, look. That's the hypocrisy. The one who makes sure everyone's aware of what they've given. It's the, the one who demands that their name be honored for all of their gifts of mercy. It's the one who, as we say, toots their own horn. Look at me. Look what I've done. Look how nice I am. So instead of that, what does he say? He says, instead, but when you give to the needy, what? Don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing so that your giving may be in secret. Your father who sees in secret will reward you, right? We are to do so quietly for God's glory to help those in need. Not to magnify ourselves, not to bring attention to ourselves, but to honor God and to help those in need. We're not trying to make a name for ourselves, but instead we're living, trusting that God sees all things, He knows all things, and He will give us a greater reward than any praise of man. When we think of God's greater reward, we see it contrasted over and over again with the fleeting or the vain or the temporary reward of man. He says there, he says uh, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. That's it. It's done. 
The, the praise of man, that is their reward. There's nothing else done. So the contrast is God's greater reward. So do you want a reward that's just there? It's done. It's just, hey, good job. Yep, proud of you. Wow, this is wonderful. Here's a nice little plaque in your honor. Or are you living for God's greater reward? Second, praying. The second illustration is praying. You know, let me say one thing, just in case anyone might misunderstand. I do see a difference in someone being recognized, not of their own volition, and wanting something and bringing it upon themselves, right? I think there's a key distinction there. There are things that people are recognized for, and I would not say that just because someone's recognized for something, they're being a hypocrite. That make sense? Yep. Okay, good. All right, second illustration. Jesus says is prayer. Primarily five through eight. We're going to look at prayer more in depth in the days to come as Jesus spends a lot of time on prayer. But the hypocrisy he confronts what is in verse five and seven. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues at the street comers. Why? That they may be seen. Oh, look at how impressive their prayer is. Verse seven. They heap up empty, empty phrases as the Gentiles do for they think that they will be heard for their many words. It's, it's those who, who pray to impress others with how much they pray or how well they pray. Oh, wow, that's just a beautiful prayer. I haven't heard a prayer that pretty. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. That's what I like to hear. I like to hear you compliment, compliment my prayers. It's the one who whose prayers are less about praising God, confessing sins to God, thanking God, or interceding on behalf of others before God. And it's more about impressing those around them. In contrast, what does Jesus call us to do? He says to pray in secret, not focused on impressing others, but in a way modeled after what Jesus says in verses 9 through 13. He gives us a model prayer that we'll look at more in the days ahead. He's not condemning public prayer again he's condemning the motive the intent the purpose of that public prayer third illustration he gives is fasting fasting verses 16 to 18 the hypocrisy that he points out is carrying yourself in such a way that others know you're fasting that it makes people look and go wow how spiritual you are look how religious you are wow that's impressive i just wish i was that spiritual i wish i was that religious he says no don't don't go, don't go about declaring your fast before others. Don't, don't get, make yourself all drab and, and moping around. Oh, I'm fasting. I'm so religious. Oh, the sacrifices I'm making to my Lord. Don't do that. No. Instead, how are we to do it? We're to carry ourselves as we would any other day. We're simply living out our faith. We're living out our life just like we would any other day. And we're drawing near to God. He's drawing near to us, seeking to be blessed by Him, seeking His greater reward. So three illustrations that he uses to help us understand what it looks like to be a hypocrite in our religious deeds, in our piety. Now, as we close today, we're going to close with just a prayer. A prayer that, that God would take our lives and that our lives would be holy for his glory. It's a prayer that we would set ourselves apart for his purposes. 
that we wouldn't live in a way that we just want the praise of man. We're not living just for the applause of man. We're not living for, for the fleeting praise, the temporary praise, the temporary reward. But we're living for God's greater reward. We're living for his purposes. And so our prayer is that our lives would flow in endless praise to the Lord. That the deeds of our hands, the paths of our feet would be beautiful in the sight of the Lord. That our heart would not be directed inward, but it would be God's royal throne. Our prayer is, Lord, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Let's pray. Father, we bow. God, we bow as those who struggle with sin. But God, as those who want to bring glory to you, who long to exalt your name. And so God, our prayer is not that our name would be magnified, but God, our prayer is that your name would be magnified. God, I I pray that if any of us, myself included, come just for the praise of man and to be seen by others, God, that you would rebuke us by your word, by your grace, by your spirit. God, show your goodness and love and graciousness to us in that way that you would rebuke us of hypocritical religion. We don't want to be that. Now, we want to be those who follow you for your praise and your glory and those who live wholly dependent upon you. So God, our prayer this morning as we close is that you would take our lives and that you would set them apart. You would let them be consecrated for your glory and your purposes. Oh God, all that we do, may it bring praise to you. We pray this, O oh Lord, in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.